our church this morning. Uh, in just a moment, we are going to stand and we're going to sing together. But before we do, we're going to read uh, short ex excerpts from <coughs> Stephen Chardock. And what we've done last week and for the next couple of weeks is just short reading at the beginning of service as a reminder for this particular season and why we're celebrating, namely that God the Son became man so that we could have salvation. He wrote hundreds of years ago, what a wonder is it that two natures, human and divine, infinitely distant, should be more intimately united than anything in the world, and yet without any confusion. That the same person should have both a glory and a grief, an infinite joy in the deity and an inexpressible sorrow in the humanity. That a God upon a throne should be an infant in a cradle. The thundering creator be a weeping babe and a suffering man. These are such expressions of mighty power as well as condescending love that they astonish men upon earth and angels in heaven. And I think we stand within that realm of men who are astonished on earth. And so let's stand together this morning, sing with joy and astonishment to our Lord and our Savior as we sing, O come all you faithful.
Let's bow together before the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for giving us our lives and all of our tasks, and all of it meaning not only for now, but for eternity. As we stand before you as your congregation, there are so many varied circumstances and occupations and schedules, but all of them and all of that is done within them, are imbued with purpose because you're at work in them to accomplish your purpose in our lives and in your world. Father, apart from you, life in this fallen world is mundane and futile. The vast majority of people live lives of quiet desperation, just going through the motions, one day turning into the next, same old, same old. But with you, all that happens and all we do have meaning. Our suffering and trials have meaning as you use them to display your character in our lives and you use us to reflect that character to others. Our relationships have meaning as you design them to be instruments to refine us and to conform us to the image of Christ. And our tasks have meaning as they're done for your glory and in the strength that you provide. And all of this is true for us because we have a relationship with you through Jesus. And we live with the blessed knowledge that all that you do is for our good. And so we're here to worship you because to you belong the praise for our spiritual life and our daily lives. We ask you to aid us in our worship so that it's pleasing and acceptable to you. We ask all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said, Amen. Thank you, and please be seated. Say welcome, good morning, and welcome to all. I'm glad that you could be here with us this morning. I especially want to welcome any of you who are our guests this morning. We're glad that you could be here. We would love to get to know you, and we want you to be able to get to know CBC. So as you see on the screen there, we've created a connection card. You can use this connection card to uh, let us know how we can help you. You can see on the bottom of the screen there, text the keyword CBC Connect to 97000 and you'll get a link back to this connection card. It has check boxes about different programs you might want to know about and then as well just an open space to ask any question you have. But we're glad that you're here this morning, especially if you're our guest and if it's your first time this morning, I invite you to stop by our welcome desk just out in the lobby before you leave today. Let them know you're a guest and we have a gift to give you as our way of saying thanks for being with us this morning. We've paused in our worship through singing to do what we call it CBC Worship Through Giving, and we call that uh, Worship Through Giving because we believe that all that we have comes to us from the Lord, and He entrusts those things to us, these blessings, material blessings, and we set aside a portion of all that He's entrusted to us each week to devote to the work of the ministry here at CBC. So our men are going to come forward now to receive our morning offering uh, those of you guests who I greeted a moment ago, we don't invite people here to ask you for money, so please don't feel obliged to put anything in the plate. Just let that uh, go by and uh, do stop by our welcome desk on your way out. But men, uh, you can start receiving the morning offering, and uh, as they do that, I'm going to go through some events that are coming up here at CBC. We have a full calendar of events on our website, cbctrenton.com. And then as well, every Monday, we send out a newsletter uh, to let folks know what's coming up. If you don't get that newsletter already, use that connection card. There's a checkbox there that says, put me on your mailing list, so you can uh, sign up for that. 
And uh, as well, just as a reminder, we've been putting a list of upcoming events on the back of the outline you received on your way in. So I'm going to walk through a few of those right now. And uh, before I start on those uh, upcoming events, I want to remind everybody that in July of next year, this coming year, uh, July 14th through 24th, we have a mission trip to Zambia. So we're going to be taking a crew of people there, and we still have some spots open. It's not a very big team, so there aren't a ton of spots. But if you have interest in this, uh, you can uh, go to our website, look for this uh, logo, or you can check that email that I mentioned uh, a moment earlier. If you don't get that email, use the connection card. Let us know you're interested, and uh, just by letting us know you're interested, it doesn't obligate you to go, but it will uh, help us get you more information so you can know what's involved and and uh, decide if that's something for you. But that's coming up in this, uh, this coming July. Seems a long ways off, but it is time to plan it. In fact, it's, it's, uh, planning is in high gear right now. So uh, things that are coming up today in our second hour, we'll be continuing Pastor Ken's Discovering God series called God's Design for Sexuality. And that will be going on in this room at 11.15. So after Cafe Community, just come on back in here and uh, try to be seated and ready to go at 11.15. And that all starts uh, in our second hour this morning. This week is our last week of our midweek program. So all of our uh, Community Institute classes, as well as our senior high and junior high teen programs, which meet on Wednesday nights at 6, and our children's program, Pioneer Clubs, those are all coming to an end for the semester this Wednesday night. There will be dinner uh, like we've been doing this past semester, so the sign-up for that is open. And I'll highlight that's open until midnight on Tuesday. I know originally we had it open until Wednesday uh, at noon. That proved to be a little too tight of a turnaround time. So if you would like to participate in that uh, this Wednesday, this final Wednesday night, uh, sign up Tuesday by midnight. And then we have one week from today on Sunday night, next Sunday night, 6 p.m., our annual Adult Christmas Fellowship. And this is always a really fun time. We try to uh, make it interesting with the program portion. And uh, as we have in the past, we've got some fun contests uh, for folks who like to do uh, holiday-themed costume and some other things. As well, we're doing something new this year. We have a talent show, and there are four acts that have signed up for that, and they all sound very interesting. So uh, I encourage you to come and check that out. And uh, this is an evening that we have uh, just a fun for adults only, so we don't have any child care provided, so try to make arrangements for that. And uh, as a part of the evening, CBC is going to provide the main entry, but we ask families with last names A through L to bring a dessert and M through Z to bring an appetizer. And uh, those are supposed to be big enough to provide for 12 to 15 adults. And all that, if you didn't get a chance to write that down, it's in the email as well as it's on the calendar. Look for this, uh, this graphic on our website and you can click on it for a reminder of what to bring. And then just a reminder of some things as we head into the new year, please note on your... Uh, on your calendar, some of these things that we've highlighted uh, below the line there. We've got uh, for our ministry teams an opportunity for you all to meet together for planning and training on January 10th and 17th. And I realize I just skipped over the special service times in two weeks. Uh, it will be Christmas Eve, that Sunday, December 24th. We'll have just one service that morning at 10:30. Same thing for on the January 31st, the following Sunday, just one service. And then in January, just mark your calendars for uh, January 24th, that's a Wednesday night, Jonathan Lehman is going to be here with us, and he'll be speaking on the topic, Maintaining Christian Witness 
in a polarized political age. And so that'll be for all of our high school through adults that, that evening. So uh, kind of uh, just prior to the kickoff of our midweek programs, we'll have that for our t uh, older teens and adults. And our, we had some questions last week. Our children's program, Pioneer Club, as well as our junior high program, will be kicking off their semester that evening. So there will be something for all ages, nursery as well for that. And then the following week, uh, on the 31st, all of our midweek programs will be back up and running. So details about all of these things are on our uh, church website, cbctrenton.com. Use that connection card if I went too fast or you missed a detail or I left something out and you need to know more. This time, we're going to have a special treat. Our CBC kids are going to be coming up to the front and treat us to a special Christmas song.
Uh, very thankful for the work all these folks who work with our children do. As a person who's had three children come up through our children's program, uh, they do great work, and I'm very thankful for the servants the Lord has brought to CBC to work with our kids. going to look at God's Word this morning in our scripture reading, taken, uh, actually not taken from, the entirety of Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from the common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all of this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You will cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They're like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. When I am in heaven, uh, whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You'll destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near to God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Let's stand once again and continue singing praise to the Lord.
I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm number 73, Psalm 73. You'll need a Bible to follow along, so these guys have some. They're going to make their way to the back, get their attention, and they'll give you one of those Bibles. It is a gift, so keep it, bring it back each week as we look at God's Word together. Today, Psalm number 73. Now, some of you know the story of Johnny Erickson. Her father participated in the 1932 Summer Olympics for the U.S. wrestling team, and he's in the National Wrestling Hall of Fame. Johnny was named for her father, John, but her name is spelled J-O-N-I. And following the example of her parents, she lived a, a very active life as a child and teenager. She rode horses, hiking, playing tennis, and of course, and, and swimming. On July 30th of 1967, when she was 17, she dove into the Chesapeake Bay after misjudging the shallowness of the water. She suffered a fracture between the fourth and fifth vertebrae and became a uh, tetraplegic, paralyzed from the shoulders down. During her two years of rehabilitation, according to her autobiography titled Johnny, she experienced anger, depression, suicidal thoughts, and religious doubts. I'll come back to Johnny's story later, but I mention it because it's an example of the common struggle that we see in the life of God's people, one that's found in several places in the book of Psalms and in the one that we're going to consider today, Psalm number 73. Though we may not experience the kind of life-changing event that Johnny did, we do experience doubts when the reality of what we see seems to be in conflict with what we believe. God's Word deals honestly with life, life as it is, and not just the way we would like it to be. But in doing so, it always as well points the way forward for us. Now I remind you that the book of Psalms has an intentional structure. The 150 individual psalms of poetry and song are divided into five distinct movements that are a five-part cantata, with each having a purpose that moves toward a final finale of praise in the last third of the entire book. And so the title of our series is Psalms, a Cantata of Praise. And those five movements in the cantata are from five individual collections. And we're looking at, in this series, select psalms from each of those. Psalm 73 is in book number three, and it begins book number three. Now, last week we started that collection, that book, and I gave an overview of it provided by the authors of the 17 individual psalms that comprise that particular collection. If you look at the top of Psalm 73, you have it open there. If you'll take a look up at the top, you see that it's a psalm of Asaph, who, along with the other authors of this collection, the sons of Korah, someone named Heman, another Ethan, they are all related, as we saw last week, literally cousins whose ancestors' background was checkered, but who are nevertheless privileged to serve as worship leaders for God and His people. If you were not here last week to get that background, you can listen to past messages at our website. And this third movement of the cantata strikes a, a noticeably somber and sad note, played as it were in the minor key throughout. 
The realism, the the honesty, the truthfulness of our God means that he must, in his word, deal with the realities of life in a fallen world. And so amidst the many blessings and promises is presented the fact that at times, and even most of the time, life is not the way it's supposed to be. And so the book of Psalms depicts both. The blessings, but also the bewilderment of God's people at what we see around us. And that's how this third movement starts in Psalm 73, with a refrain that's found elsewhere in Scripture. So please look at the end of verse 3. The prosperity of the wicked. You find that over and over in Scripture. Verse 4, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. This morning we are going to see ourselves in this record of Asaph's spiritual dysphoria. We're going to see that the solution is what I have in the title of the message at the top of the outline. It depends on how you look at it. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, we thank you that we are here. and We thank you that we have this quiet and sacred time now to look into the word that you have provided for us to know you, to know ourselves, to know the purpose that you have for us in this life. Thank you for loving us enough to instruct us and not keep keep us groping in darkness and finding our own way. Help us then to follow your way. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I say, first of all, in your outline that believers question in faith. Verse verse 1, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now you have five major points in the outline. We'll spend most of our time on the the first three, but this first one is extremely important to set set the stage of believers questioning in faith. And throughout that outline, you see that I have in each point the words believers and faith. Now, technically, those are redundant because, as I've often told you, the words in your Bible that are translated belief, believe, and faith, they come from the same Greek word. So this first point could be those who have faith question in faith or believers question in belief. Both words have to do with in what or in whom we place our trust and confidence. So this first verse is a statement of faith. It's a statement of belief. God is good to Israel, says Asa. Now Israel is his chosen nation comprised of his chosen people. That was the focus of his work in his world in the first part of your Bible that we call the Old Testament, of which Psalms is a part. God used the nation, which was comprised of physical Jews, physical descendants of Abraham and Isaac and and Jacob, but his promises are for those who are related not only to Abraham, but to God himself, by faith, by believing. So the Bible says in the New Testament, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. And this is why Jesus had such intense confrontations 
with the Jewish religious leaders when he walked the earth because they assumed that their physical lineage meant spiritual relationship. And so Jesus said to Nicodemus, a a prominent Jewish religious leader, famously, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Verse 1 in Psalm 73 is referring to those spiritually related to God, born again, saved. And so they are, verse 1 says, pure in heart. That is, not that they are perfect, but that they are loyal to God. They are faithful. Their heart is is pure. Their motives, affections, and their choices seek to please God. In other words, a normal Christian who loves God and wants to please God with his or her life. The last part of this psalm describes that goodness, but for now, it's blessings that flow from a relationship with God. In fact, some Hebrew scholars say good in verse 1 should be friend because the benefits are based on relationships. So verse 1 is saying God is a friend to his people. But we saw in verses 3 through 5 that there are questions about what the psalmist sees. But though believers indeed question, we do so in faith, all the while still believing. And that is why I say in the outline, we rehearse truth. Doubts, questions, plague genuine believers. But please hear this, friends. It's precisely because we believe that the questions arise. That God is good to his people is, according to verse 1, surely true. That is, it's certainly, definitely true. And Asaph, who wrote this, is saying, I, Asaph, believe this. It's foundational to my faith. God has a special relationship with his people, including me, And that has spiritual blessings and spiritual benefits. But what I'm seeing raises questions. Nevertheless, those questions are asked in the context of my relationship with God. If I did not believe he was good, I'd have no questions about the apparent injustice that I see. The question arises because of, not in spite of, my belief. Those who believe, those who have placed their faith in Christ, remain believers even when they are troubled by questions. Their questions are faith-based questions. Their questions are not the doubt of denial, and in fact, believers will never deny the truth of what God has said and promised. But they will compare it to what they experience and have questions. This is different than what the Bible says elsewhere. Some of you are familiar with the book of James, and in its first chapter, it says this, the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. So how does James say that, and yet in Psalm 73 and in other places in Scripture, we have people having, having questions. Well, this word double-minded is literally, in the Greek language, it's literally two-souled, S-O-U-L-E-D. 
for the person depicted in James chapter 1, it's as though one soul says, I believe, and the other in turn says, I don't. One commentator says, this sort of instability marks all that he does, his personal life, business life, social life, as well as his spiritual life. But one may wonder how this man is different from the anguished father who asked Jesus to heal his child. Some of you remember this story. A man asked Jesus. He knew he could heal. He knew he had power to heal. He asked him to heal his his son. And Jesus asked, do you believe? And he said famously, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. But there's an important difference between the double-minded man, the double-souled, two-souled man of James 1 and the man here in Mark chapter 9. This father was not oscillating between belief and unbelief. He desired to believe. He even asserted his belief. But because he felt keenly the inadequacy of his faith, he asked for help in believing. He was not facing in both directions at the same time like the double-minded man in James chapter 1. In spite of his conscious weakness, this father had set his heart to believe. So one way that you know, friends, that you believe the right things is that you have questions about the right things. It's because you believe those right things that those proper questions arise. And you know this question about the experience of the wicked is right because it comes up in the lives of God's people often. For example, David was troubled by it in another of our psalms, Psalm number 37, as was Job in the extremely difficult circumstances God allowed into his life. As one author says, in each of these places, in Psalm 37, in the story of Job, and now in Psalm 73 and elsewhere, a different answer is suggested. In Psalm 37, the answer is to wait to trust God, believing that in the end, the wrong will be set right even in this world. So David says in Psalm 37, do not fret because of evil men or be envious of those who do wrong, for like the grass they will notice soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. So the advice is be patient, wait. They'll have their end even even in this life. In Job, There is no answer given, at least no answer to Job. If you remember the story of Job, you know that Job went through all that he did without knowing the first chapter of Job and what had happened between God and Satan and what God had allowed uh, uh, Satan to do to Job and the reason for which he did it. Job's never told that. So no answer is, is given to Job. It's simply... That God is above us and we dare not, Job, indeed we cannot, question him in an accusative way. And God makes that point at the very end of the book of Job, it's 42 chapters, in verses 38 through 41 he does that, demanding in a ruthless and thoroughly exhaustive manner whether Job can explain even one of God's many works of creation, not to mention God's ways with the righteous and the wicked. And of course Job cannot And the conclusion comes when Job confesses in the final chapter, surely I spoke of things that I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Now in Psalm 73, the answer is neither ignorance 
That's what we have with Job. He's not told. Nor trust in the eventual judgment of the wicked in this life, Psalm 37. But rather, it's a perception that the ultimate end of the wicked beyond this life and the blessed reality of God experienced by the righteous here and now. And we need to see both of those, says Asaph in the psalm. So the apparent good life of the wicked, while the the faithful struggle, is a theme in Scripture that arises for very good reason. It's sometimes the case that the consequences of wickedness will be seen in this life. Sometimes that our own situation compared to theirs can tempt us to accuse God, which is what Job was in danger of doing. But other times, like in Psalm 73, the answer is that the books for the wicked may be, may be balanced not until after this life. But even so, even if the wicked around you prosper while you struggle, you see through believing eyes and experience life accordingly. And so I say in the outline that believers question in faith as seen in our rehearsal and our allegiance to the truth and those questions often arise because we resent evil verse 2 but as for me my feet had almost slipped i had nearly lost my foothold for i envied the arrogant when i saw the prosperity of the wicked Asaph is is saying that he came close to losing his faith. In verse 2, verse 1, surely I know God is good to Israel. God is good to his faith, his people. But he says in verse 2, but my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. He came close to losing his faith. What kept him from losing his faith? It's the same thing that keeps you. And really not the same thing, the same one. Who keeps you, who keeps me. We have a song that we sing that rightly speaks of the impossibility of believers defecting. Not because of us, but because of the one who has taken hold of us and will see us through. And so the song says, When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. And he does. He does for his people. Jesus told the apostle Peter, who you may remember had an extreme struggle with doubt, that led to a temporary denial, but thankfully was followed by immediate repentance. And the reason that it would not and could not lead to ultimate defection is because of what Jesus had said to Peter prior to that. He said to Peter and to the apostles at first, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, and now he singles out Peter with his Jewish name, Simon. But I have prayed for you, Simon, Peter, that your faith may not fail. 
And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. There's a lot there in those two verses. Satan asked to be able to sift all of them. Notice that Satan has to get permission, just like he did with Job, and he's asked to come after all of you. And Jesus is saying, in effect, I've given permission for him to test you, Peter. But Peter, you're not going to fall. Here's why you're not ultimately going to fall, because I prayed for you. And when Jesus prays for you, his prayers are always answered. So he's asked for all. He's been given permission for one who will not defect because in that passage, notice it says, and when you have turned back, not if you turn back, when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. That will happen because Jesus is more powerful than Satan. But notice why in Psalm 37 we fall into the questioning that, that feels, Psalm 73, excuse me, that we fall into this questioning that feels like it could lead to a denial of our faith in verse 3. It says, for, at the beginning of verse 3, because, here's why I almost fell, because I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I, Asaph, plug in your name, looked at unbelievers and envied. I want what they have. And envy destroys, it destroys us internally. And if it's not arrested, it can dominate our internal deliberations and then have external effects. So that the individual becomes a despicable me, harboring resentment of others for what they've done or, or what they have. Other people have too much power over us. The Bible calls it the fear of man. Proverbs 29 and verse 25 says the fear of man, the reverence, the awe of human beings will prove to be a snare. So when you look at other people and you envy, be careful. The Bible warns about it. Others have too much power over us, and that's why the Bible warns so often about it. One of the best things that you can do for yourself, and parents... One of the best things that you can do for your children is to evaluate your life independent of other people. Adopt your identity, who you are, what you're about, what your life is, not in relation to other people, but in relation to ultimately your creator and the relationship and identity that you have with him. You and God are a majority. And so instill confidence in your children in that regard. In who they are, so that when they interact and are tempted to compare and contrast, they resist because they remember who and whose they are. 
They have an inner sense of security based not on superiority, but on their blessedness. God has me. God has my family. And my family has taught me this over and over again. They've modeled this. They've said this. We've prayed and thanked God about this. So when that child goes out there and the inevitable comparisons and contrasting goes on, they're able to say, wait a minute, I belong to Jesus. No matter what anybody else says. I was at lunch a couple of weeks ago with a a brother, a teacher, a seminary, a teacher, a PhD. And I was asking him about his, his background, and how he came to the Lord and how he came into the ministry that he, he now has. And he told me about his family having been missionaries overseas. And that when he was in eighth grade, the family moved to the U.S., And he's in eighth grade. He has not been schooled in this country at all, and now he's in a junior high. He's the child of missionaries. They have no money. He has really no clothes. He doesn't have the latest fashions, to be be sure. And he's mercilessly teased, and he did not fit in. He didn't understand the racial tension that he saw. He would sit at lunch with uh, black children because he had grown up with them around him all the time. And so he was teased for that. It got so bad that one day he just walked away from school. He just left school. His parents tried to get him into another school, tried to get him into a Christian school, but they had no way to afford it. They met with an administrator before his ninth grade year, and it would have been yet another building now that uh, senior high starts. And that would have threatened more of the same, if not worse. They met with this administrator got the prices, knew they couldn't afford it. A few days after the meeting, they got a call saying someone had paid his tuition in full. He and his two siblings, younger siblings, who were okay at the elementary schools for a while, they all graduated from that Christian school. And he told me that that was a life-changing moment in his life. They suspect that that administrator paid the bill. But someone's generosity has touched many lives decades later through the ministry of that brother. I have a similar story that I don't have time to tell you in my own life where God did a very similar thing that was transformative in my life. Now, here's why I tell you that. And here's why I tell you to tell your children this. God's got you. God has his people. And when it looks bleak, And when you don't like it, and when you want to run, or when you're tempted to want to be like the people who don't know Jesus, you stay with Jesus. He's got you. He's got our family. In effect, he's got your back. And so we should have, and our young people should have, a confidence that's quite different from cockiness. You're special. But you're special because God is good, not because you're worthy. And so you view others through the lenses of compassion and pity rather than envy and anger. The troubled teenager needs to hear that. 
The unhappy housewife needs to hear that. The wanderlust husband and father who's always looking for the next adult toy to buy to satisfy him or something to go and do. And so many of them stay that way because they never get out of verse 3, the envy of verse 3, because they're not grounded in the conviction of verse 1. People who are grounded in that conviction of verse 1, God is good. God is good to his people. Then will come through the inevitable questions of life. The Psalms have a lot of what are called lament in them. In fact, there are Psalms that are just called that, lament Psalms. And in those lament Psalms, the psalmist will lament, will decry the way things are and ask God to change it, even taking care of the people, judging the people who are causing the problem. And so you say, well, that's what I like to do. I like to think about the demise of other people. (laughs) Those lament psalms are my kind of psalms, right? But here's what you need to understand about those lament psalms. The reason the psalmist lament that way is not because of what's being done to the psalmist, but what's being done to God. And so we do resent. But you resent evil in the right way. It's because of what it does to the character of God and the reputation of God in his world, not us. Believers question in faith and we observe in faith. So Asaph has committed the sin of envy, even as a believer, as we are wont to do. But one commentator says of him, Asaph is honest about his sin. So the next thing he tells us is what he thought he observed about the wicked during the time of this spiritual slippage that he underwent. They seem to have no problems, possess, no, possess near-perfect health, to thrive on pride and be courted by other people, even to the point of being able to dismiss God as having any importance for their lives. So again, verse 4, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from the burdens common to man, not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. If you look down at verse 11, they say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? So the wicked seem to get away with their wickedness and even boast about it. And that's what's so troubling. Dionysus the Younger, an ancient tyrant of Sicily, he plundered the temple of Syracuse, sailed home safely with his loot, and then remarked, do you not see how the gods favor those who commit sacrilege? And When we are in the, an envious state, we find such situations galling. We wish God would strike the arrogant person down. Verse 12 is a summary of what Asaph has told us about the wicked so far. This is what the wicked are like, he says. They are always carefree. They amass wealth. When you think about that summary, what Asaph was looking at was our 21st century equivalent of lifestyles of the rich and famous, and he's, and he's envying what they, what they have and observing what they have. But he's doing so in faith, and that's why questioning in faith and observing in faith results in, I say, thirdly, 
recover in faith. He begins to make a a turn. It's continuing to descend in verse 13. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. But then notice, verse 15, if I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children, God. Now, now notice that. He's saying, you know, surely this is all for naught, this living this righteous life thing. But then he says in verse 15, but I never said that. I thought it, but I never said it. If I had spoken out like that, it would have harmed people. I would have betrayed your people, God. I don't really believe what I said in verse 13, that it's all in vain. And therefore, I would not say what I was thinking because it's not true and it would harm others. In counseling people over the years, I have often said to them, I want you to say out loud, God doesn't know what he's doing. Go ahead. And you know they're not able to do that. And I'm confident in the challenge because I have reason to believe that they are believers. And because they are believers, they won't do that. Indeed, they question. Indeed, they are troubled. But God works by his spirit in them to bring them out of it. And verse 16 says, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God and then I understood their final destiny. Surely you placed them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. He came back to God and came back, it says, the sanctuary, the place where God met with his people. Now, Johnny Erickson, that I mentioned earlier, tells of her struggle and how she recovered. She says, I always thought that God was good, but here I am, a tetraplegic, sitting in a wheelchair, feeling more like his enemy than his child. Didn't he want to stop my accident? Could he have? Was he even there? Maybe the devil was there instead. Those are the thoughts she's having. And God sent her a a classmate, a high school classmate, a Christian who would later become a pastor, a guy named Steve Estes. Him and I were able to sit at dinner last summer, this past summer, with Steve Estes and his wife. We went to a pastor's and wives conference and it happened that we were at their table. Here he was as a teenager and he's giving counsel to a contemporary, Johnny. And he says, God put you in that chair, Johnny. I don't know why. But if you will trust him instead of fighting him, you will find out why. If not in this life, then in the next. He let you break your neck. And perhaps I'm here to help you discover at least a few reasons why. Imagine a teenager having the knowledge and the courage to say what the Bible teaches about God's control of everything. 
He paused, Johnny says, and then he summed up with 10 words that would change my life. Here they are. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. God's permitting what's happening now. God's permitting it. Nothing can happen outside of God's control. Satan has to ask permission. Remember all of that, friends. What looks like chaos is all in God's hands and and being used for his plan. Lamentations chapter 3, I don't have it for you on the screen. Lamentations 3.32 says, Though he brings grief, he will show compassion, so great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to the children of men. In the span of two verses in Lamentations 3, the Bible asserts that God brings grief, but does not willingly bring grief. That is, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God takes no pleasure in this. However, because humanity has chosen a sinful path and the consequences that go with it, our sovereign God uses all of it in order to accomplish his ultimately good purpose. If you have questions about that, look at the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. In particular, look at the death and crucifixion of the Lord. God himself planned that, the Bible says, from eternity past. Yet people are guilty of murdering him. God used the murderous hands of hateful people to accomplish his good work. God permits what he hates, but to accomplish what he loves. Believers question in faith, they observe in faith, they recover in faith, and then more quickly, we testify in faith. So now three things happen to Asaph as he begins to come back to his original statement of faith. He goes through all of these questions, but God's Spirit is working in him to bring him back, and so three things happen. He has a new awareness of the destiny of the wicked. That's in verses 18 through 20. And then he has a new awareness of himself, beginning in verse 21. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. The second area in which he gained this new awareness, not only the destiny of the wicked, but now of himself, he saw that in questioning God's just handling of life circumstances, he was not being wise, he was being senseless and ignorant. Indeed, he was behaving like a brute beast before God. It's a profound insight for whenever we fail to learn from God and instead begin to trust our own contrary judgments on anything, we start to think like animals which have no real awareness of God. And we can begin to act like it as well. And then thirdly, he had a new awareness of God's presence and so also of God's genuine blessing on the righteous. Verse 23, yet I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. I'm no longer envious, no longer jealous. 
My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Having gone into the sanctuary, having recovered a true spiritual balance with new insight into the destiny of the wicked, of his own lack of spiritual understanding, he now also recognized that God has been with him all along and indeed always would be with him. And in addition, he saw that this was a true blessing against which worldly blessings of the wicked are as nothing. So these are verses are the very apogee of his testimony. They're, they're filled with some of the finest expressions of true spiritual, spirituality and spiritual maturity in all the Bible. And then lastly, believers question, observe, recover, they testify, and thanks be to God, return in faith. Verse 27, those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. Now, do you all remember where this all started? Verse 1. Surely God is good. And now it ends where it began with his statement of faith. It is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge, and I will tell of your deeds. Here is your take-home truth. Believers demonstrate their faith even in their questions. Let's bow before the Lord. Father, we again thank you for the blessing of opening your word, being instructed, and I trust being encouraged with the questions and doubts that we have. Depending on the circumstances of our lives, these arise. And Lord, we want to see them arrested sooner than later. We want to follow the example of the, the psalmist who believes. And because he believes, these questions arise, but it's within the context of that very belief that you work in his heart to bring him back to you. Oh, Father, do the same with us, your children. Work in us this day. Work in us this week so that we analyze the ways in which we are subtly drifting from you. And bring us back to your fatherly heart. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together for our closing song.
Thank you again for joining us again this morning right outside these doors and until 11.15, we have 11.15, we have our time. Cafe community, coffee, bagels, some other stuff out there. Um, help yourselves. At 11.15, we'll be back in this room for our second hour. Look forward to seeing you then.